Okay, Acts chapter 16. Um, Acts chapter 16 is amazing on so many levels. Uh, one, I've been to Philippi several times. It's one of my favorite spots to go. Usually when you go to the ruins of the ancient city of Philippi, there's nobody else out there. You're way out in the country. It was a metropolis in its day, but it's been ruins for centuries now. Uh, so it's a beautiful, quiet reflective place to go and the ruins make you feel like you're going to look up and see Paul walking down the street. Uh, the other reason I think it's such an amazing, chapter 16 is amazing. Uh, in chapter 16, as I mentioned last week, is sort of a summary statement. Notice the three people that come to Christ in, in Acts 16. Um, you start out with Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman. You're going to see a possessed slave girl come to Christ or exercised uh, by um, Paul and perhaps comes to Christ. And then um, you're going to see, uh, which that would be the lowest, lowest rung of the socioeconomic level. And then you're also going to see uh, that Philippian jailer come to Christ, which is sort of middle class. I think part of what Luke, the author of Acts, wants you to see here is people come to Christ in different ways, and um, people um, from across the socioeconomic spectrum come to Christ. Uh, there was one particular historian years and years ago, a long time ago, who, who, who tried to paint a picture that all the early Christians were slaves and poor folks. Well, we did. We had slaves and poor folks. Uh, think about Onesimus in the book of Philemon, the slave. But you had upper crust, upper class, upper socioeconomic folks, too, that came to Christ. Uh, so there was a great diversity that came to Christ uh, uh, throughout our history, but here in the earliest days. Um, and, and Philippians, you, you see that. I think almost chapter 16 is a self-contained chapter. The other thing, other reason why this chapter is important, I encourage you, if you find a little extra reading time, and I hope you find a lot of reading time. Turn the television off. Find a lot of reading time. Go read the book. Go read or reread the book of Philippians. That's the um, letter, of course, that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Here you see his activity in Philippi recorded by Luke. But if you look at, go reread Philippians. You'll see Paul's great, great love for this great, great church. You'll see how this church didn't have a lot of money. It was very small, but extremely generous. Extremely generous. Um, and, of course, uh, you, you'll see some of the things that you read about in Acts chapter 16 reflected in the book of Philippians, such as, in a few moments, you're going to see Paul and Silas in prison. And what are they doing in prison? Uh, what are they doing while they're in prison? Uh, they are praising God. Well, when you read Philippians, Paul's in prison again, uh, probably in Rome when he writes Philippians, and he's talking so much about joy in Philippians. Now, again, he's in prison. He's writing back to the church of Philippi, who remembered that when he was in prison in Philippi, uh, he and Silas got people's attention. Because even though they had been tortured and were in prison, they were worshiping and praising God at midnight. So I'm sure that helped have the impact 
when Paul writes them, again from prison, but this time in Rome, writes them and tells them to rejoice in all things. When he talks about joy, and that is a prevailing theme in the book of Philippians, uh, when he writes about joy, um, I'm sure they remember back to his first visit there. Um, by the way, since I mentioned joy, it was so interesting back in the day when I got to teach Bible New Testament to undergraduates because it was amazing what they knew, what they didn't know, what stuck with them. And at the end of the semester, one of the things, you know, I'd really love for them to take away, you know, who Jesus is, who Paul is. But one of the things that kept getting repeated to me was when I dealt with Philippians particularly, because again, the theme of Philippians, church in Philippi, is joy. One of the things that stuck with these undergraduates, and there were a few older folks, but most of them were typical undergraduate age. Um, what stuck with them was where I talked about the difference, where Paul, Bible, Christian faith, and I talked about the difference between joy and happiness. Our culture needs to make sure they know the difference between joy and happiness. God is not concerned about your happiness. I'm a great patriot, but I wish that our Declaration of Independence did not say you have the right to the pursuit of happiness. Uh, because happiness is based on happenings. Happiness is based on circumstances. That's why the world's so bizarre now. Everybody's trying to pursue happiness and pleasure. Um, and again, I used to love to tell my teenagers, you know, me nor God are concerned about your happiness. We're concerned about your holiness. Uh, but our culture is passionate about happiness. Joy is something very different. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's something the Holy Spirit produces. You, you, you know, it's probably bizarre if you're really happy while you're in prison. It makes perfect sense that you can have joy while you're in prison. Yeah, if you're in this culture, if you were happy in prison, they, they, they would get the psychiatric people after you. But there is a difference between joy and happiness. And we, we've got to get that in the Christian community. Uh, joy is something the Holy Spirit produces. Um, that's why you can, you can live a life of joy regardless of circumstances or happenings. That's why Paul can say, in, when he writes back to these Philippians, and he'd already illustrated it for them, rejoice in all things. Again, I will say it, rejoice. That's why Paul can say that when he writes back. So if you have some extra reading time, go and read his letter to the Philippian church. Uh, even though we'll probably leave Philippi, uh, today, because when you exit chapter 16 in Acts, you leave Philippi. Uh, Paul's relationship with the, with the church in Philippi that he started was a deep, deep, rich relationship. So with that, um, we, we remind you where we were last week. We, we have Paul in Philippi. You know, they were going to do some other stuff in Asia Minor, but the Macedonian call, the vision came to them, so they followed the Holy Spirit. They jumped on a boat went and landed in Neapolis, uh, the port city about 10 miles from Philippi, made their way to Philippi, which is a Roman colony in northern Greece. It's, it's northern Greece. We call it northern Greece today. Uh, Macedonia, which is northern Greece. Uh, it's a Roman colony, and that's going to be really important in the rest of the chapter. It's a Roman colony. Um, he's, he's up there. And you see, um, he, they always, he always goes and looks for Jews first. Uh, there was not enough men, male Jews, in Philippi to create a synagogue, but there were women who gathered and prayed down by the river. 
on Shabbat, on Sabbath. So that's where he went, and that's where he met Lydia, who was kind of the leader of that group, that wealthy businesswoman from Thyatira who dealt in purple. Uh, so she became the first convert in Philippi, which means first convert uh, on Greek soil, which means the first European convert. Uh, so that was that was Lydia, and then um, we saw we saw Paul and Silas. And remember who the other two are that's with them. Remember we picked up Luke. All of a sudden it became we, came we, not they, but we in the text. We pick up Luke, and uh, Timothy's with them. He picked up Timothy and Lystra before he crossed the Aegean to go to Greece. So there's at least four that um, you know that, that are there, and they start hanging out some in Lydia's house. So let's pick up the story. Look at chapter 16, verse 16. If you don't know that deliverance from demons and exorcism is a big part of the Christian faith, you need to look at this book a little more closely. Um, Jesus healed a lot, and a big percentage of his healings were exorcisms. Um, and a core Christian value is what the book of Acts is here for is to show us how Jesus continues his ministry, his work, his preaching, teaching, healing through us. That's why you see all the folks in the book of Acts doing the things that Jesus began. In the very first verse of the book of Acts, you're told that in the ministry of Jesus, he began to do certain things. And it didn't end when he died. It didn't end when he was resurrected. Because of his uh, spirit residing in the church, we do those things that Jesus did. Preaching, teaching, healing. That, that's, the, that's, that's, that's Luke in the New Testament's definition of the church. We are the body of Christ, the physical presence of Jesus in the world, so it makes logical sense we do what Jesus did. Jesus continues his ministry through us. So if you wonder what it means to be a Christian, there you go. Jesus continues his ministry through us. So you're going to see an exorcism here. Paul's going to bring about an exorcism. So verse 16 in Philippi, as we were going to the place of prayer, again, down by the river where the women met, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met, again, the we, Luke's with them, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Uh, that word there, spirit of divination, literally is spirit of a python. And the reason the Greek says spirit of a python is that's the spirit that protected the oracle at Delphi, that place in the ancient world where you went to get your fortune told, where kings and rulers went to get their fortune told. Some of you have been with me to Delphi, the ruins of Delphi in Greece. That's um, where the oracle was, and it was the spirit of Python, which is connected to the spirit of Apollo, that protected the oracle, uh, the soothsayer, um, there in, 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 in Delphi. That's, that's why the Greek says she had a spirit of divination, spirit of Python. Uh, she was a soothsayer. She was a fortune teller. Um, you know, and by the way, again, Paul's Jewish. He's hanging out with some people trying to be connected to the Jewish faith down by the river. 
these people know, they, they've read the book better than we have, particularly the Old Testament. Um, throughout the Old Testament, just for instance, Deuteronomy 18, soothsayers, mediums, seances, spiritism, bad idea. They're condemned. They're condemned. Um, so yeah, you'll make me a little antsy if, if I, well, I try to avoid baby showers, but this happened to me, this literally happened to me one time. I was at a baby shower and um, you, you ever heard of the pencil test? Something about hold the pencil over the pregnant woman and you tell if it's male or female and I'm in the room thinking, you know, dear God, literally, dear God, I, I, these are pagan people. I mean, soothsaying, fortune-telling, spiritism, tarot cards. The, the Bible goes on with that list. Be a little careful about superstitions and bad idea. You know, don't, don't pray to the Lord and then go read your horoscope. Bad idea. Don't, you can't blend your Christian faith with, you know, doses of paganism. Uh, Paul makes that very clear. And again, back to what the Council of Jerusalem said when the Council of Jerusalem said how Jewish we have to be. You know, don't eat meat offered to idols. Don't eat meat that haven't been bled or don't eat blood and, 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 and flee from um, sexual immorality. Yeah, kind of don't, don't deal with idolatry. Um, anyway, so here was a slave girl. She had a spirit of divination. She was a, like a medium, soothsayer. By the way, the King James, for some reason, calls her a damsel. It's not a word we use a lot. She's a damsel, uh, uh, but she's a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And, of course, she brought her owners a lot of money because she would, you know, charge. They would charge for her to tell your fortune. You know, it's amazing. And I hope this person's not related to you, but I've been around this area a long time. I pastor in Archdale. As long as I can remember, on Main Street, Archdale, there's, there's a little house with a sign out front. They'll tell you a fortune. And you know, every time I pass by that house, I think, well, if you really could do that, you'd probably have a better house. <laughs> you know, you, you, you should learn something about the stock market or something. I mean, yeah, I don't know how people get sucked into this stuff. I really don't. But you can make money. You can make money from desperate people, you know, for whom Jesus and the Holy Spirit's not enough. So they want their fortune told. Uh, they'll pull out the pencil test or whatever else. Anyway, so this slave girl who had the spirit of Python is making her owners a lot of money. Um, keep reading. She followed Paul and us. And by the way, this is where the we section ends until you get to chapter 20. I'm going to um, make a suggestion in a minute where Luke went. You know, as, as a close reader of the text, when it's, when it's they, 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 we, 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 they, 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 you, have, you should ask, where did he go? Where did Luke show up? Where did he go to? He's we right now, but it ends right here. I'll, I'll offer you a minute. I'll offer you a suggestion in a minute where I think Luke went. Because the text, I think, suggests. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. 
Most High God, that's El Elyon in the Hebrew. She's speaking Latin probably in, this, in Greek in your New Testament. So she probably didn't know Hebrew. But in Hebrew, El Elyon is, is the God Most High. That, for, that title for God is used about 30 times in the Hebrew Bible. So El Elyon, um, can, can, can these servants of El Elyon can proclaim to you the way of salvation. Well, that's true, right? It is. That's true. It reminds me of, I'm sure you've noticed in the gospel, particularly the gospel of Mark, the demons are the first people in the gospel of Mark to really know who Jesus is. They proclaim it in the gospel of Mark before other people start proclaiming it. The disciples are trying to figure it out and the demons are calling Jesus by the right name. Um, so, you know, the demonic knows more than, you know, the book of James reminds us the devil is a good theologian. He's a good theologian. He understands Christian theology. Sadly, he understands Christian theology better than some Christians we encounter. Um, so what the demon here, the, the demon, the spirit of Python, that's possessing this slave girl is saying is true. Um, but you're going to say that doesn't excite Paul. Paul would not approve that, uh, at least eventually. So she's saying good things. This, this, these service of LL Yom, they can tell you the way of of salvation. Verse 18, and this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed. Paul's a real close friend of mine. I've lived with him now for 40 some years. I don't think it took a lot to annoy Paul, by the way. Um, and you would know it when Paul was annoyed. He was long suffering for a few days as these owners had this slave girl with the demonic spirit speaking, spirit of Python. You know, they were following Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke around, and it was okay with Paul for a few days because she wasn't saying a lie, but he got annoyed and he does something about it. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, notice the spirit, not the girl, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name or the spirit or the power or the presence of Jesus Christ, uh, or even the authority of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Exorcisms um, are a big part of the Christian faith. Deliverance from that which is demonic is a big part of the Christian faith. It always has been. John Wesley's ministry in many ways was a ministry of deliverance from all of the ways the enemy keeps us in bondage. Um, the Roman Catholic Church just redid their manual of exorcism back in the 1990s. And it's always amazing when the media gets a hold of somebody doing an exorcism, uh, particularly if it's like a Catholic priest for some reason. Uh, you'll see an article every now and again, the Archdiocese of New York approved six exorcisms this year. And I will say, duh, yeah, yeah. You know, but deliverance ministry is part of the ministry that Jesus continues to do through the Christian community. If you don't like the supernatural, what in the world are you doing with Christianity? Um, but yeah, so you see again, Jesus continuing his ministry through, um, through his followers. So he frees, he frees, he exercises the demon from this um, slave girl. And you see who's not gonna be happy, verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, um, economics makes people do a lot of what they do. Um, they seized Paul and Silas. Now you say, hmm, why didn't they seize Luke and 
Timothy. Well, read the text. Uh, they, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, every Roman colony had two magistrates. Uh, strategoi was what they were called in Greek. Praetors is what they're called in Latin. But what I always like to notice is every Roman colony had two, not one, two. They were the judges in the, in, the, in the region. And they had two because they could keep each other in line. Not a bad idea, probably. But they functioned, they used didn't appear before one, you appear before two. Because they kept each other in line. So, and when they had brought them, after they seized Paul and Silas only, dragged them into the marketplace for the rulers, and they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. So, class, show you how intelligent you are. Why not Luke and Timothy? They're not Jews. Luke's half Gentile. Luke, I mean, Luke, uh, Timothy's half Gentile, and um, uh, Luke is Gentile. So what, what they're using here is, I mean, anti-Semitism, or I prefer to call it just anti-Jew. Um, anti-Semitism is alive and well today. It's on the increase today, by the way. Um, and it's always been part of the Jews' experience in history. Anti-Semitism, anti-Jew anti behavior, anti-Jewish prejudice is alive and well. Has been throughout their history. Uh, that's why the Holocaust was not completely out of character for the way humans have treated Jews over the years. So you have the same thing. This is a Roman colony in the area of Greece. Not a lot of Jews there. So these, these two people who lost their income now because... Uh, their, their demon girl got exercised by the Apostle Paul, delivered from the demon by the Apostle Paul. They're mad, so they're playing the race card. These are these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. So that's why Luke and Timothy sort of don't get hauled in. I think I think Luke. And this is just conjecture. I think Luke, because you're not you're going to lose the we right here. To get chapter 20 and all of a sudden we shows back up again. I think Paul probably told Luke to keep on with the mission. Keep on with the mission. Paul said, I'll handle this. Tim, Silas and I'll handle this. So maybe both Luke and Timothy went on and kept on the mission. Maybe they left Philippi at this time. Uh, but only Paul and Silas, the two Jews, are, are captured, hauled in. Um, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, they put them in, into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. Couple things you need to pay attention here. Um, the people who are going after Paul and Silas are playing the race card, they're, and they say they're disturbing the city. They're teaching us things that Romans don't do, that Romans can't tolerate, that Romans can't believe. Um, they um, and there's some truth in that. One of the things Luke is showing you in the book of Acts, because again. 
he wrote it to his, his audience first, and we just get to keep reading it. But when he wrote this, um, he was trying to show the Roman world that you could be Christian and Roman. You know, you don't just automatically have to say you can't be Christian if you are Roman. Lydia's already come to Christ. The Philippian jailer's getting ready to come to Christ. Luke wants you to see you can be a Roman, a good Roman, most of the time, and be Christian. But the Christian faith started, you know, uh, here it's just an economic thing. They, they, they hurt the economic uh, livelihood of, of the owners of the slave girl. But um, eventually, there's other things that get Christians in trouble. You can be a good Roman, except when it comes that time annually when you need to offer worship as a good patriotic Roman to the emperor. You know, as Christians, you always have to know where the line's drawn. You can do a lot that culture does, but there's a line drawn somewhere. And in the Roman Empire, because you had multitudes of gods, multitudes of gods, um, you know, to El Elyon would be Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the Jews. El Elyon would be Zeus to, to, to the Greeks, Jupiter to the Romans. Um, that's why they had no trouble divinizing their Caesar, their Caesars. And once a year to kind of pull the, the, the Roman Empire together and to make everybody good patriots and, and to create unity, you need to be careful when you're creating unity for the sake of unity. To create unity, uh, they were asked, um, that they were told, you know, on their 4th of July, part of what took place as a good Roman was, you had to worship, that usually meant offering incense, offering incense and worshiping the Caesar. Well, that's, there's a line drawn there. The Christian community couldn't do that. There are no other gods before the true God. And if, if you run into uh, some other god doing favors for you, that God's a demon, Paul's going to make very clear. Anyway, so yeah, we, we do increasingly uh, run afoul of the Roman Empire until we take over the Roman Empire and the, and the emperor becomes Christian at the, at the beginning of the 4th century. But anyway, so you notice uh, the race card is played. Uh, you know, the fact they're a proud Roman city, they're in Greece as a colony of Rome that allowed Romans to settle particularly soldiers, ex-soldiers settle uh, almost, almost free of taxation. So it's a Roman colony in Greece. Rome ruled Greece at this point, but it's made up of Roman. That's why they're probably speaking Latin here. Um, so that's the, these people who are mad at Paul are using both the race card, they're Jews, use the race card, and we're Romans. We don't do some of this stuff. So that's why it gets Paul in trouble here. But what I want you also notice um, they, they go to the magistrates. The magistrates allow them to be taken and beaten and thrown in the inner prison. Uh, you're going to learn in the next section that was illegal. That was illegal. And, and, and the magistrates are going to get nervous when they realize Paul was a Roman citizen. You can't beat a Roman citizen without a trial. You can't beat a Roman. So they were treating... Um, you had three basic categories of people in the Roman Empire. You had um, slaves or bond servants, foreigners, they were called barbarians, or Roman citizens. Paul was a Roman citizen. Don't know quite how. 
He was born a Roman citizen. Somehow his parents had become Roman citizens. He was a Roman citizen, even though he's Jewish. So, um, yeah, you can't beat and imprison a Roman citizen because they can appeal to Caesar, which Paul will eventually do. They can appeal to Caesar and go to Rome for their trial. Well, it's just kind of mob hysteria here. Uh, it's easy to, to, to work up a mob, given human nature what it is. So here they... Um, they throw the magistrates, the ones who should be observing Roman law, they, they, they beat and they throw. This is one of three beatings that we know that Paul got, Paul received. Uh, if you think coming to Christ means you get an easy life, Paul would differ with you on that one. This is one of three beatings that Paul received. So he's beaten, he's thrown, they're thrown, he and Silas are beaten arrested, thrown into not just the prison, but the inner prison. By the way, if you go to um, Philippi today, they'll show you the ruins of what might be that inner prison. It's, it's kind of like the rock. You know, it might have been a prison built on the side of the hill and with the inner prison almost being a cave in the back of that. That was fairly standard in the ancient um, architecture. So they're thrown in the inner prison. They're put in stocks, which means um, those are like two boards, that clamped over your ankles. Um, sometimes they also clamped over your, your, your wrist, but all, almost always they clamped over your ankles to keep you secured. Uh, that not only kept you secured, but it was, it was pretty much a torture. You know, you get put in stocks, you know, you don't get 20 minutes of every hour out of the stocks. So you're stuck in those stocks. And you can imagine how painful and how problematic that becomes when you're stuck in the stocks. All of that behavior should have never been done to a Roman soldier, to a Roman citizen, to a Roman citizen. So here we find Paul and Silas illegally in prison, mob hysteria. Uh, um, some people who played the race card and, and played on Roman patriotism. And Paul and Silas are in prison. Look how it ends. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Not hymns about God, but hymns to God. I mean, a lot of our most favorite songs are hymns about God, but we need to make sure we make a lot of our worship to be hymns to God, hymns of praise to God. So they're singing hymns of praise to God. They're telling God how worthy God is, how great God is. They're singing hymns to God. It's midnight. They've been beaten. They've probably been bloodied. Uh, they were taken straight from the mob scene into prison. Um, they're in stocks. It's very uncomfortable and very painful. So here they are in prison. It's midnight. And the prisoners were listening to them as they were praying and singing hymns to God. I bet they were listening. You know, one of the things I know about living the Christian life is the world around us watches us more closely when we suffer. That's why it's important for us to suffer well, to suffer with grace, to suffer in faith, because the world watches us when we suffer. That's where they kind of watch us to see how real our Christian faith is. So instead of just whining and whimpering and being bitter and angry and mad and just being there in a, in a tremendous pity party, which all of that would have been understandable for Paul and Silas, it's midnight, and they're singing hymns of praise to God. And part of what you're watching here is the power of praise. Praise makes things happen. Just like prayer makes things happen. 
Praise makes things happen. That's why we should be a people of prayer. We should be a people of praise. Those things make things happen. Such as, verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's, everyone's bonds were unfastened. Earthquakes. There was one at the crucifixion of Jesus. There was one at the resurrection of Jesus. There was one earlier in the book of Acts that occurred when, the, in one instance when the Spirit fell upon a group of people. So earthquakes have sort of a, at least in the book of, in the New Testament, earthquakes have sort of a spiritual connection. Again, particularly think crucifixion and resurrection. There was an earthquake that occurred both of those. So here's an earthquake. Here's another supernatural thing happening. Earthquake happens, and somehow, because of the earthquake, doors open and chains are unfastened. So again, it's not just an earthquake. There's some supernatural stuff going on there. And all these prisoners are, are freed. Notice now how the jailer reacts, the chief jailer. Verse 27, when the jailer woke up, and saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Because that probably would have been, if the prisoner escaped, that probably would have been uh, the judgment on the chief jailer, would have been death. And one thing you know from the Roman world, even as from cheesy 1950s movies about the Roman Empire, falling on your own sword that type of suicide was more manly and more dignified than letting someone kill you. So uh, he, this, this jailer pulls out a sword, he's about to kill himself, because he, know he knows that'll be the penalty if all of the people he supposedly guard, is guarding is released. So he's, he's in bad shape, this, this uh, jailer in Philippi. So he pulls out his sword. Um, look up verse 28. Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Again, it's the middle of the night. It's sort of dark in this, in this prison, and part of it, which may be a cave, is dark. But Paul calls out, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. You know, again, Paul could have sat back and thought, Yes, stick it in real good, jailer. You know, but that's not what Paul does. Paul saves... More than one time, Paul's going to save this jailer. He saves this jailer, who was his enemy, who was keeping him imprisoned, who I'm sure was not being nice to him, who had put him in the stocks. Paul says, don't harm yourself, for we're all here. Verse 29, and that again, that's going to thoroughly confuse the jailer. This is not typical human behavior. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights. He wants to investigate. Called for lights, and he rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, as a good Roman, he might think these guys are gods. This is not typical human behavior. Earthquake, the prisoners being freed, uh, Paul stopping him from killing himself. So, you know, he may think he's in the presence of some gods. Again, the Roman world made gods easily and multiplied them quickly. So they, he falls down before Paul and Silas. Look at verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, he brought them out of the darkness of the prison, and he said to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
By the way, the word saved is a really good biblical word. So use it. What must I do to be saved? Now, as we Christians have read this for a couple thousand years, um, there may be a couple things going on here. Um, he may just literally be, be saying at this point, what can I do to be saved from the Romans who are going to kill me because I let all their prisoners go? Paul's not going to, if that's what the guy's asking, that's not what Paul's going to answer. Paul's going to use the word saved in a different way. But, in fairness to Paul and Silas and the text, he also probably knows these are some super spiritual, powerful people. Philippi, again, you can go walk the ruins of Philippi. It was not a, no cities in the ancient world like the size of our large cities today. So when Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke had been walking around healing, preaching, teaching, exercising, the, 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 the demonic, that, that, that reputation spread. So this jailer might have known what people were saying about Paul and Silas when he put them in prison. But now that this happens, he might be believing that what he had heard about these two is true. They are servants of El Yon. They are servants of the Most High God. So he, he may be saying, saved on a spiritual level. How might I be saved, you know, on the physical level from my Roman overlords? How might I be saved on a spiritual level? Because you people, you are tight with evidently the most powerful God. You are tight uh, with the supernatural. So, so they answer, verse 31, and you get a succinct statement concerning what salvation is that agrees with the rest of the New Testament, and I would add Old Testament. It, it, you get a succinct statement. If you want to know what it means to be Christian, here it is. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. Believe. Believe in. King James says believe on. Believing in Jesus means you believe He is who He says He is and you believe He did what He said He did. That is a cognitive, mental act of the will you say, yes, he is who he says he is. He did what he said he did. And you accept that. You accept that. Uh, I've probably said in your presence, but it bears repeating a lot. And some of you will get uncomfortable when I say this, but uh, that's okay. Um, you know, if, if I ever ask somebody, are you a Christian? And I get the answer, I hope so, or I'm trying to be. That really worries me. That'd be like you asking me, are you an American? And I say, I, I, I hope so. I'm trying to be. I mean, it's an objective fact that I'm American. You know, you ask me, are you a Southerner? And I say, well, I, I hope so. I'm trying to be. <laughs> to be a Christian means you believe in Jesus. It doesn't mean you're a super ethical person. It doesn't mean you're better than anybody else. It doesn't mean you've got it all together. It doesn't mean you're right about everything. It means you believe in or on Jesus Christ. So if I ask somebody, are you a Christian? They answer, well, I hope I am. I'm trying to be. What they think I just asked them was, are you, a, you know, how close are you to Mother Teresa in your actions and activity? That's not what I'm asking. That's not what the Bible means by being a Christian. Being a Christian is an objective transaction. 
you believe that Jesus is who Jesus says he is, and you believe that Jesus did what Jesus said he did on Calvary regarding your salvation and the free gift of eternal life. You just receive that. So being a Christian, now after you become Christian, I hope you get a little, I hope you sanctification needs to happen. Hope you get your life together a little better and you grow in grace and your activity gets better and your witness becomes stronger and stronger for Jesus Christ. You know, I hope you don't act like the devil, you know, after you've been a Christian for 40 years, I hope you don't act like the devil like you did 40 years before. I hope you've changed some. But being a Christian is just simply you've said yes to the claims of Christ. It has nothing, and it doesn't matter whether you feel like you're a Christian or not. Because again, it's not about your feelings, it's not about how good you are. It's not about you, really, in general. It's about you accepting that Jesus, who he says he is, quit saying, Jesus, you're a liar. You're not Son of God. You're not Savior. You're not Lord. You, you believe Jesus, who he said he is, and you believe that what Jesus did for you, he really did. So quit calling Jesus a liar, quit doubting Jesus. And, and that's what it means to be a Christian. So I'm glad. I mean, that's the whole New Testament. You know, go read the book of Romans from beginning to end. Go read the book of Galatians from beginning to end. Um, you know, if, you, if Paul would have walked up to you and said, you're a Christian, and you said, I hope so, I'm trying to be, he would have had a real confused look on his face. Again, it'd be like, I'll walk up to you and say, are you Roman? Well, I hope so. I'm trying to be. Well, either you are or you aren't. You know, so you need to, if you don't get anything else from the Christian faith, at least learn what it means to be a Christian. How many times people sing Amazing Grace and then they still think, well, I go out and I try to be, I hope to be, I want to try my best. Amazing Grace is all about the gift. You just accept it. You just accept it. Believe on the Lord or in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And this will be true for your household also. Anybody in your house, household, that believes in Jesus will be saved. I don't care if, you know, they just got saved yesterday and they still are acting like a bunch of pagans. If, they, if they've received the gift of Jesus and, and yielded themselves to Jesus, you know, Jesus, you're not a liar, you're who you say you are, I believe you are who you say you are, then they're a Christian, you will be saved. So um, one, of the, one of the best examples of spiritual blindness that Paul says comes from the enemy, one of the best examples of spiritual blindness are people that can be in a church for 40 years and sing Amazing Grace every other Sunday, and they still think, well, if their good outweighs their bad. The Protestant churches, the Catholic churches, the Orthodox churches, and the, Greek, and the Jewish community says that's wrong says that's wrong. You know, but spiritual blindness is what God has to cure you of before you come to Christ. That's why it takes the Holy Spirit pulling you to Christ. Uh, remember Lydia last week? The Holy Spirit opened her heart. It, it takes the Holy Spirit because we're, we're spiritually blind. And we, we think. You know, we can go to church 40 years and sing Amazing Grace and we still think it's all about us and what we do and how good we become. And if I'm better than you, you know, I mean, that's, spirit, that's the best example of spiritual blindness I know. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be, not you may be, hopefully you will be, you will be saved, you and your household. 
Anybody that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Keep up with the text. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them, this is the jailer, he took them the same hour of the night. It's getting pretty late by this point. Took them the same hour of the night. And this is beautiful. He washed their wounds and he was baptized at once. Now, St. John Chrysostom said something. He was an early church father. He said, the Philippian jailer washed and was washed. He washed the wounds of Paul and Silas. You know, we shouldn't just wash each other's feet. We should wash the wounds. He washed the wounds of Paul and Silas. And I think in that same pot where he's washing the wounds with Paul and Silas, which, by the way, is sim great symbolism, water mixed with blood. I think in that same pot, they're in the house, that same pot, Paul and Silas used that water and turned right around and baptized the Philippian jailer. Again, read the text closely. Luke makes it clear. He washed their wounds and he was baptized at once. And all of his family. I believe, you know, I don't, you don't read too much into that text. I believe his family believed. Because you just read verse 31. So that's a beautiful picture of him washing Paul and Silas and then him being washed by the saving blood of Jesus Christ. He's brought into the Christian family. Look at verse 34. And uh, this particular place stop. Look at verse 34. And he brought them into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced. Joy is always one of the first products of the Christian life. Again, think about what Paul writes back to the church of Philippi. You know, the book of Philippians is all about joy. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had made some New Year's resolutions and said he was going to be a better person. No. That he had believed in God. Um, I think I can finish. Two minutes. Watch me do it. Look at verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and get away from here. Go in peace. Watch Paul. Then Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, without a trial, men who are Roman citizens. And have thrown us into prison? And do they now throw us out secretly? Paul says, you think I'm going to leave quietly? I mean, y'all messed up big time when you did this to Roman citizens. At least a Roman citizen. Paul says, I'm not leaving quietly. No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Now, you can look at this a couple ways. Um, well, let's keep going. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Please, please leave the city. We're being nice to you. Don't tell anybody in Rome what we did. So I don't think Paul's just copying an attitude here. Maybe. 
I think he's, well, he's doing what he's doing for the sake of the gospel in Philippi. I think he's doing what he's doing for the sake of his witness because the church does get planted here. And, you know, he doesn't want the person, people who planted the church to just be beaten and condemned and then fade away. I think for the sake of the gospel, the sake of the church, Paul wants to make it clear to that community that they were beaten unfairly. Again, part of what Luke is trying to show is you really can, on most days, be Roman and, and Christian. Um, so they, they, they get to leave the city exonerated, and that benefited the church in the city. Um, look at verse 40. Get to go back to Lydia for a second. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, if you want to say brothers and sisters, brethren, disciples, the new Christian community, they encouraged them and departed. I think, again, the, the strong implication is the church that was founded in Philippi, like all churches in this period, met in a home, but this church met in Lydia's home. She was wealthy enough for it to be large enough that Lydia was head of the house church there in Rome. So before he leaves, he goes and edifies and encourages the Christians that have come to Christ, people have come to Christ, and then he departed, which means um, we get to go to Thessalonica next week. Curious, how many of you in the room ever have been to Thessalonica? Yeah, some of you have been there with me, yeah. Uh, so next week we'll be with Paul in Thessalonica. Uh, if you go to Greece today, Philippi is amazing. It's quiet. It's out in the middle of nowhere. It's ruins. Go to Thessalonica. It's a big, big, big city. You have to look hard to find Roman ruins, first century. It's, there's only two big cities in Greece today, Thessalonica in the north and uh, Athens in the south. But next week we'll pick up with them. Um, yeah, we'll pick up with them. Um, then go to Thessalonica. Let's, uh, let's, let's pray together.